Most important announcement that, that Mike said this morning was, uh, don't forget to get your kids. <laughs> I was dying laughing. Was like, hey, the other church is coming soon, so please don't forget to pick up your kids afterwards. I was like, man, if you forget to get your kids, we got deeper problems in the and the other church is coming quickly, so you forget to pick up your kids, but we need to change the sermon for this morning. The children are a blessing and a gift from the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, leaving them in the children's ministry. <laughs> Romans 14, don't cause your brother to stumble. He can't handle kids. They signed, they signed up to serve, and now they're becoming surrogate parents, so grateful for that. All right, let's jump into, we're going to pick up where we left off. If you weren't here last week, I'm not doing a review of last week's review. So <laughs> we're going to keep going. So if you need to find out what happened last week previously at Solid Rock, to just go, go on the website, solidrockchurch.net. You can see, uh, listen to the sermon, and we do video as well. So you can do that. And if you look at the video, every probably four weeks or so, you'll see this shirt. That's how we get down at Solid Rock. We, not, we, don't, we don't care around here. We don't care. Jesus was born in a manger. The king of kings was from Nazareth. That's like being from southeast somewhere. I was very far. So. Say, what, what good can come from southeast? That's what Nazareth was like. When they heard that the Messiah is from Nazareth, they was like, huh? What good can come from Nazareth? The Messiah did. So if Jesus can be born in a barn, I'm dressing down on Sunday. So. But we are in a series on Romans. We've been in the book of Romans, sort of a red light, green light series. So we'll do a couple messages. Then we stop, hit some other things, and then we come back. We're going to plow through for a while now in Romans. We want to get through this book. This is a very dense theological book. And so what we did was when we ended our series, we ended at chapter 4. We went in a different direction for a few weeks that we felt like was necessary. But now we're getting back. So we're actually in chapter 5. But in order for us to get our minds sort of back in the world of the book of Romans because of the kind of book that it is. I did a review last week and we ended off finishing verses chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. So today I'm going to attempt to do uh, the rest of chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4 today so that we can finish in chapter 5. And if I don't get it done, then fire me. Um, and I will appeal. So I'm going to hit some of this a little bit higher, higher. More. Last week I said we ain't going to do 30,000 feet. Today we're going to be at like 20,000 a little bit, all right? Because I was in the details a lot last week. I really wanted to finish one and two last week, but I got more into the details. And the reason why I do that, because there are people in this room who weren't there when we went through Romans. And Romans is such an important book to the Bible that I don't want to just come in and pick up where we left off and you not really get some of the things that are important for you to know to understand the rest of the book. Like one thing that's important for you to know is you cannot understand the book of Romans at all unless you understand chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, when Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power to save and that people are justified by God through the gospel. That's an important verse. In fact, one of the most profound events in the history of the world was called the Reformation, where on October 31st, 1517, a monk went and nailed to this church on Wittenberg's door, a big Catholic church, this 
these 95 theses, these things that he disagreed with that the Catholic Church was teaching based on his reading of the Bible when that led to sort of a revolution, which we call the Reformation, which led to essentially the, the church, the Protestant church now finding its voice again, being able to read Bibles and interpret what the Bible means. And a lot of what that started with was Romans 1, 16 to 17. He was struggling with how does one know that they are saved? What's their confidence that they've received salvation from God? And he read that verse, and then he just, it just the Lord opened his eyes to see that people are made righteous before God, meaning not guilty. So anyone who is a Christian, even though you and I sin, both accidentally and intentionally, will stand before God at some point, and because of our faith in Jesus Christ, God will say, you are not guilty. You're not going to receive the punishment for your sins. But in fact, you're going to receive a place in heaven that you don't deserve. Right. Why? Because you had faith in Jesus Christ and not just faith that you confessed, but you actually tried to obey God. You actually strived. Yes, you made you failed. Yes, you messed up. Sure. But you tried. You tried to obey God because you had faith in Jesus. One of the most profound statements to me in all of Scripture is when Jesus comes back from the dead. He's resurrected and his disciples have seen him once or twice. And there's a dude named Thomas that hasn't seen him yet. And I like Thomas because Thomas is kind of like me. So Thomas was like, they were like, Thomas, Jesus is back. We saw him. He was like, man, y'all ain't punking me, man. I ain't. Nah. He said, if I don't see the nails I don't see the scars in his hands and his feet and his side. I'm not buying it. And so Jesus shows up and he says, Thomas, stick your fingers in the holes. See the, 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 the wound on the side. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And he said this, you believe because you see. But blessed are those who do not see me and believe. And that would constitute many of us. We weren't there. We didn't see Jesus rise from the dead. So we're going by faith. We're going by scripture. We're going by history. We're going by what is the church believed since this happened. And this letter is one of the most important letters to understand a lot of the theological ramifications for what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. So up to this point, he's basically making this point. He's defending his statement, this thesis statement, that justification, in other words, being, being considered by God as someone who, who can come to heaven, who's been forgiven for sins, and who is justified, that person can only be justified based on faith in Jesus Christ. It can't be based on just their ability to try to obey God on their own. It can't be all, all roads, all dogs don't go to heaven. <laughs> they don't. It's a wonderful Disney movie, but it's a terrible eternal reality. The only dogs that go to heaven got a C on their back, Christ, or a J, Jesus Christ, or JC if you want to do that. John, Christ, never mind, that's probably not helpful. All dogs don't go to heaven. All religions don't lead to Christ. All religions don't make it. If that were the case, then Jesus would not have had to come. That's why he's unique. Because no other God of any religion comes down and says, I'm going to die and live the way you're supposed to live so that you don't get the punishment that you deserve. That's what makes Jesus different. 
And so what we're going to do now is jump into this. He's making this point, and he, he started with highlighting people who, who, who were able to observe that God is a genuine good God just based on creation, and they reject him. And then he comes into Romans chapter 2 and gets, out, gets at people who may know the truth but are judging other people for the sins that they commit, and he's saying you're also guilty as charged as well. God's just because you didn't commit all some of the other sins doesn't mean your judgment of people who commit certain sins is somehow pleasing to the Lord. And this is a good warning for us. Because this letter wasn't written directly to us, but because it's the word of God, we read it as if we as if it is on some level. And there are things we have to figure out. We can't apply everything that it says. We know that there's there's a context into which this letter was written, but This is the word of God, and it has a claim on our life. And so there are ways that the warnings of judging other people are very serious for the church because it is easy to judge other people, especially when you don't do what they do. Or if you've made progress in an area they're struggling in, you pat yourself, yeah, you know, I did it. No, you did not. No, you didn't. Spoiler alert. The grace of God in you. For whatever purpose to glorify him gave you the ability to make progress in an area where others are struggling. But from God's perspective, how dare you judge others when you yourself have done or do the same things? Don't measure people's maturity by their worship on Sunday. Measure their maturity by the fellowship you have with them Monday through Saturday. Because that's the real stuff. I have the privilege of going to conferences and speaking in different places and people will be like, oh my gosh, that was an amazing message. I'm just, I'm just, you're so great. I'm just like, man, you just don't know me, man. I just asked my wife if she feels the way you feel. <laughs> Actually, could you tell my wife what you just said so she could, babe, hold on, someone wants to talk to you. I want to, no, 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 no. I love it. I go out speaking in front of thousands of people. People think I'm amazing and come home and I didn't take the trash out. We had a conflict. Babe, it was just just a piece of crust. Like, why are we fighting over this? I just watched three people get saved. Let's talk about that. Take the trash out before you leave next time. Let's talk about that. That's real. That's real life. For those of you that are not married yet, your day is coming. All that you're waiting for, your day is coming. Your day is coming. All right, let's jump into the world. We're going to pick up at verse 6. We're going to breeze through. We're going to do all of these. This chapter, so I'm going to hit some things that each of the sections are saying, and we're going to keep moving. This is not how we normally teach. If you are a guest today, this is not what we normally do. If you come back next week, we'll pick a smaller portion of the Bible and we'll go through it kind of verse by verse so that we understand what it's saying. But to get back to that, we got to kind of go in and hit a bunch of stuff today. All right. So beginning in verse six in Romans chapter two, I am reading from the CSB uh, version. And I quote. He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good. Seek glory, honor, and immortality. That's an interesting word. Seek immortality. Make sure you don't miss what he's saying right there. It's not just glory, honor, good. You're seeking immortality, like eternal life. There is a second death that Roman, the Ro- Revelation 20 talks about. That there's called a lake of burning sulfur. That when it's all said and done, the father is going to throw Satan, the, the Antichrist, the, the beast, and all the demons and all people who rejected Jesus Christ into this lake of burning fire, and it's called by God the second death. So the only ones who have eternal life are those who have it in Jesus Christ. 
So when he's talking about seeking immortality, he's talking about living forever. Because from God's perspective, living forever is not suffering forever. For those of you who, those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, suffering is supposed to be in this life, not the next. You don't believe in Jesus in this life, and then you get to suffer in the next life. Suffering is for those who, got, who did not suffer for Jesus in this life. They will suffer for eternity in the second death. So when he's saying seeking immortality, he means very much that. Verse 8, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. Verse 9, there will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Verse 10, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Verse 11, for there is no favoritism with God. Here's what he's trying to get. Based off the Romans 1.16, that everyone must be justified by God, must be declared not guilty, essentially. In that great big courtroom that we see in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, God the judge has everything. And either Jesus is your defense attorney or you're, you're defending yourself. And there are, there is no, any, even in this world, anyone who's facing serious crimes, whenever you hear like they're going to represent themselves, you're like, you're dumb. <laughs> you are the dumbest thing ever. Are you serious? Even the judge, listen, even the judge, listen, I, this didn't happen recently, but years ago when I was in the streets, I was going to court a lot. And, and, and I remember sitting in the courtroom and somebody wanted to do that. They wanted to represent themselves facing serious time. And the judge did, I, this, I, you can't make this up. The judge went like this. The judge was sitting forward and this person said, so, you know, and I waive my right to counsel. I'm, I'm, I'm representing myself. And the judge went. Sir, do you understand what you're saying right now? Yeah, y'all, I'm representing myself. Sir. <laughs> and he even looked at the bailiff like, man, you see this dude? Do you, do you understand what you're saying right now? If you represent yourself and you're waiving your right to counsel, then you're going to speak on your behalf about the crimes that you're being accused of. Do you understand that? Yeah, y'all, I do. Have you researched how often that works in the favor of those who represent themselves? No, Your Honor, I haven't. Are you sure you want to waive your right to counsel? Actually, Your Honor, I changed my mind. I'd like to get a continuance. <laughs> the Lord gave that man at least that much wisdom that day. You will not stand before God and represent yourself and it will go favorably. So what he's getting at in these five verses is saying, listen, God is going to repay everyone according to what they've done. There are people now who've committed crimes and they're still unsolved, right? You can go on certain channels. My wife loves these channels where people kill their spouses and they be having these unsolved mysteries and, and, I, and it bothers me. I'm like, but why do you, you always watch these shows? What does that mean? Why do you like these shows more than any other show? Like, why don't you like... And they be real, not like, LA, not like, not like, like CSI, but like the real like documentary-like styles, like... And be watching them for hours. I'm like, babe, why you? Why you? Why, what, what did you like about this episode? Like, she killed her husband. Both of them. Like, what are you? Like, it's just it's it's a reality. You're going to stand before God. Everyone is going to be paid according to what they've done. There's no cut cards here. This is just the reality, eternal reality. And what he's saying is. 
that people who have done good, which is essentially their faith is in Jesus Christ, God's going to reward them. Listen, when I got up here earlier and talked about the suffering you're going through, we hear this stuff and we're like, hey, yeah, yeah, I just want my circumstances to change. And totally get that. But God is not unaware of the struggles that his children are going through in this world. And he's not unaware of it. And the rewards or the circumstantial changes that we hope for may not come as quick as we want them or may never come in this life. But God is going to say to many people in this room, well done. You fought. You hung in there. You fought the good fight of faith. Welcome home. Welcome home. But it's not going to come easy. The Bible doesn't say persevere because life is easy, right? You don't have to persevere when things are fun. You don't have to persevere when things are fun. I told you all this before, man. My mom used to take us to Kings of Me when I was a kid, and we'd get there at 10 o'clock right when it opened. We'd be in there at 10, 11. And she'd be like, all right, what time? be back here at 4 o'clock. What time did I say? 4 o'clock. And she was only asking me, what time did I say? <laughs> 4 o'clock. It was like, Mom, why are you, you asking me all the time? Like, babe, why you keep watching these shows where they kill the husband? It was the same thing. Married the same woman almost. And so, sort of. Hey, don't put that part on a uh, video. Don't put that part. And then when I would go good on rides, it seemed like 4 o'clock came 10 minutes later. I didn't have to persevere. Lo lines could be real long. And I would either wait or I would pretend like, I'd be like, Ma, what'd you say? And I'd just work my way up and tell people. <laughs> I mean, I was a kid, what you gonna say? So don't touch me, you know, I yell something out and be scared. <laughs> old life, old life, old life. I, I'm sorry if I gave some of your kids something to think about and consider. Hey, take this part out of the sermon too. I didn't have to persevere because it was fun. When the Bible tells believers to persevere to the end, it's because God made it intentionally difficult for us because the joy and the fun will be when this is over. Not right now. That doesn't mean we don't, the Lord doesn't bless us now. Doesn't mean he doesn't care about us now. Doesn't mean he doesn't give us things that we pray for now. But I tell you what, this is not the place to receive your commendation from God. This is not the place. There is the place in his presence where his words are the only words that really matter. So in this passage, he's just simply saying, listen, God is going to repay everyone no matter what they've done. So if you are someone who is Jewish, who was given the law of God, don't think that somehow you're special because you're going to be judged just like the people who didn't obey God that didn't give his, get his law. And that's essentially the point he's making is God is watching and he will repay everyone according to what they've done. Look down at verses 12. We're going to read 12 through 16. And he makes this point clear by bringing this up. This is the first time he really starts to bring this up. He says this in verse 12. And I quote, all who sin without the law will also perish without the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So when Gentiles who do not have by nature the law do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse them or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. 
Okay, so what is the law? What is he talking about? The law is essentially, you can, there's a couple different ways people see the law. They see it as the law of Moses, which is what's also called the Pentateuch or the Torah, and it's, it's sort of Genesis through Deuteronomy, or really Exodus through Deuteronomy. It's sort of what Moses taught about how to obey God. Some people think the law is just the Ten Commandments, essentially. That's sort of the, the Cliff Notes version. When you want to know the law, is sort of the Ten Commandments summarize what God is telling people to do. So the first four commandments are about how you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the last six of them are how you love your neighbor as yourself. Some people think the law are the moral commands in the whole Old Testament, all of them, including Proverbs and, and so forth. And for some people, the law, for Jews at least, the law was circumcision, which is every male must cut off a portion of his anatomy, and that represents his identity with God and his relationship with God. And he is now a part of the covenant relationship that God has with the Jewish people. So what is the law then? Is it all of these? None of these? Or I think it's a combination of all of them. Essentially, the law are direct instructions from God on how to obey him in this life. And in the Old Testament, it was different than the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it was different. Now, out of all the people that existed in the world, God chose the Jewish nation, the Israelites, the Hebrews. He chose them to be the people group, the ethnicity that he would in the flesh come out of. No reason why whatsoever. That goes back to Abraham, which we'll cover when we get to chapter 4. He chose this particular ethnicity to send the Savior of all humanity from. So Jesus is Jewish. He's not American. He's not African. He's not blonde, brown hair with blue eyes and a shaped up beard that any girl would date. And he's not a black dude with a dashiki and a bush and some pearls. He was a Hebrew, he was an Israelite. He looked more like Osama bin Laden than anything else. And Jesus comes to fulfill this law perfectly. Now, this law was a contractual agreement. A covenant that you hear about in the Old Testament was sort of a, a contract between God and, and particular persons. So there was a, a, a covenant, a contractual agreement that God made with a man called Abraham. And because Abraham believed what God said, God said that he's going to bless Abraham and make him the father of many nations. Meaning that when people trace back their family line, it's going to come back to you. But it wasn't just in flesh and blood. It was also people who have the same faith, who believe God, who believe me like you did. You will be, in a sense, their spiritual father, in a sense. So this law that he's talking about, though, is mainly for the Jews and he's saying, look, the law has been given. It's a good thing. And people who perish without having the law, non-Jewish people, are going to stand before God and face judgment. But then he says people who sin, who disobey the law, who the Jewish people, they're going to be judged too. So his point is all people are in danger of obeying, disobeying God. They're in danger of it unless they have faith in Jesus Christ. So for the Jews, they have to figure out, okay, wait a minute. For thousands of years, 
We've been told we're God's people if our males get circumcised and if we obey all these ritualistic, moral, civil, and, and, and ritualistic demands, these moral, civil, and ceremonial laws, then we're God's people. Now you're telling us doing all of that, we're not God's people? And then you got the Gentiles who were like, wait a minute, man. There's a ton of gods that we worship. Look, there's a statue over there and a statue there. You mean to tell me that worshiping these gods isn't the same thing as worshiping this God? Like, we're not going to go to the place of paradise by believing in that God. We got to believe in this one and this one only? This one God? This one? This was a paradigm shift for everyone. It's a paradigm shift. You know what it would be similar to? Probably not similar to, but I don't know if any of you have ever had this. You've seen this on television where there's just unrest. Remember back when Ferguson happened, the unrest of Ferguson? There was martial law, right, where they say tanks are on the street, police are marching the street. It looked like Lebanon somewhere. And it was like no one can be outside after 9 p.m. It's the new law. Same thing happened in Baltimore after the Freddie Gray incident. I was there taking pictures. It was crazy. And it was like martial law. That's a paradigm shift. Like what? So now I can't even go to the store? So if I want some Kool-Aid, I can't go real quick. Or if I want something to drink, I can't go to the 7-Eleven at 9.03? No. But we've been able to do this our whole life. My whole life I've gone to the store. No. That's what this is like. You're no longer accepted that way. That doesn't work anymore. And if you continue to live that way, you're going to be punished for it. That's what the Jews were thinking. And the Gentiles, look, God has excused all of this false worship, but if you continue to live that way, you're going to be punished. Why? Because Jesus came. Now things have changed. The stakes are higher now. And this is what he's getting at in these passages. See, God's standard is sinless. It's sinless. God's standard is not sinless. It's sinless. It's sinless. If you are not perfect in your obedience and you've broken the standard, the standard is sinless. But then when Jesus Christ comes and he, he obeys the law and he's sinless, then there's grace for us who believe in him to now sin less. So we get to being able to sin less because we believe in Jesus who was sinless. But God's standard is sinless. If you are not sinless and you sin less, it doesn't work. It doesn't work for God. It doesn't work. And he sets the priorities. He sets the rules. I got three boys. And I set the rules. If I say, nah, I mean, you can't. Kitchen's closed, fellas. It's 10 o'clock. We can't get a snack. Kitchen's closed, fellas. Kitchen's closed. Oh, puppy. Oh, kitchen is closed at 10. <laughs> Close at 10, son. The only thing, if y'all, if y'all tackle me and wrestle me down to the ground, then y'all can get it. And they'd be like, kitchen's closed, boys. That's just good. <laughs> I ain't pretty yet. God determines the standard. It's sinless. But now that Jesus has come for us, it's sinless. We make progress because we are trusting in him and we are seeking to obey him. 
But God will judge people. And God even has a word for people who never hear the gospel. People used to ask this question a lot when you tell them about Jesus. Well, what about the pygmies in Africa who never hear about Christianity? So God's going to send them to hell? And I'd be like, man, you don't care about no pygmies in Africa for real. But, but to answer your question, this passage says, look, God has put conscience in people. And he will evaluate people based on how they kept their own conscience. So even if you didn't hear about Jesus and God judges you based on how you obeyed your own conscience, people have still failed. In other words, not only, okay, let's just set aside the fact that you didn't even hear about Jesus and couldn't obey him. You couldn't even keep your own moral commands. Humanity can't even keep its own rules, its own moral commands. That's why New Year's resolutions get broken on day two. You can't even keep your own conscience. And this is what he's saying here is that judgment comes for that unless you have faith in Jesus Christ. So verse 16, on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. What he means by my gospel is the gospel that I am preaching to you about. The good news, what the gospel means, is Jesus Christ. So this is all bad news so far. Everything he's saying from Romans 118 to basically 320 is all bad news. It's all like, well, man, what's the point of living then? He gets into some more bad news right here, specifically to those who are Jewish. If there are Jewish people in this church, they may be thinking, okay, well, I'm still good. I mean, I'm a Jew. And then he says this in verse 17. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will, and approve of the things that are superior being instructed from the law. And if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and the truth in the law, you then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal, do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking it? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So here's what he's saying is, yeah, you know the law. You know that it's good. You boast about how people should obey the law and you break it. You break it. Here's why this is important for us as believers. Because Christians do the same thing. We know what the Bible says. We know what we're supposed to do and not do. And there are times we make decisions to do what we feel like doing rather than what we should do. And God says, you, look at this. What is this? You do this. You know, you know that when Jesus said in Matthew 7, he says, the measure you use, do not judge, because he said, the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You know what I've come to find out? This is what I honestly believe. I can't point to a verse and prove this, but this is what I honestly believe. The people that I know of, that I help or talk to, that are most judgmental of other people, I think are judging people, that they think people are judging them because they judge people. I really think that. I think if you struggle with people and, and, and wonder if they like you, if they're talking about you, ask yourself, do you talk about them? 
The people who struggle with thinking that people judge them are usually judgmental towards people. And I think it's God letting you be judged by the measure in which you judge others. That's what I think. I can't prove that, but I definitely think that's the case. Because there are people that have talked to me and said things that they think, and I'm like, I know this person doesn't think that about you. I know they don't. I thought that. Man, I'm up here preaching my face off, right? No, I have. I thought that. I could be up here preaching my face off, and people will be like this. Like I'm not tired, right? And I'm sitting here like, man, they don't even care. I'm judging them doing the sermon, man. I don't care. Lord, send something down. Rebuke them or something, man. Wake them. <laughs> no, nah, I don't do that. I used to. I don't do that no more. But so, I used to judge people. And then them people would come up and be like, hey, bro, that sermon was what I needed. I'd be like, oh, really? Okay, cool. <laughs> like, cool, cool. And they would highlight the stuff I said while I thought they were sleeping. And I would be like, Wow. And if they had known, I'm going to be like, man, look like you was nodding off. They were like, man, that's just how I got focused sometimes. I focus like this. <laughs> I don't believe that, but you still heard what I said, though. Something else is going on. I don't really believe that, but you still heard what I said. So this is what he's getting at. You, you, you know this stuff. You know it, and you do the same things. Why are you better? Why are you better? Because you can judge somebody else for what they do, and you do the same things. Why are you better? You're not according to God. Now, in this passage, he's talking about the Jews, but I think for Christians, that's just how we are. We do it towards other people, especially towards people who are not Christians yet. Man, we hold non-Christians to the standards of Christianity and just be self-righteous towards them. But Jesus was hanging with tax collectors and sinners. All the religious people were like, man, what is he doing? You think those women weren't immodest back then? You think these people weren't drunkards and all that stuff? Jesus wasn't like, oh, I can't hang with them. I'm a believer. He was like, shit, that's the people I need to be with. We would rather hang with people who profess to be believers that don't live it than not hang with people who don't believe and don't know it. That's a different sermon. Man. I ain't trying to offend nobody today. I don't want to offend nobody today. I'm trying to go to the game and get back for the thir- Thanksgiving dinner. Man. I might get hurt. He said, you who boast in the law, verse 23, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? The answer is yes. Yes, we do. Yes. Yes, we do. And every time we do, it's a decision. So he says this in verse 25, talking about the Jews still, circumcision benefits you if you observe the law, but if you're a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now he's trying to clarify what that means. I didn't just say circumcise yourself and then you're good. That was supposed to represent what you're going to do in your heart. Remember in uh, Acts chapter 2, right? Peter is teaching to them about Jesus. And he says, Jesus was something about, he took, going from Joel chapter 2, and he says, you crucified him, you killed him. And what does it say about the people? It says they were cut to the heart. And they said, man, what must we do to be saved? Circumcision was supposed to cut Jews to the heart. Like the physical act was supposed to affect them morally. And it just didn't. It did not. That's the history of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, I can sum up like this. God saved people. They disobeyed him. He punished them, then forgave them. They went back and sinned against God, disobeyed him. He punished them and forgave them. They sinned against God, disobeyed. All right, that's the whole story until Jesus comes and says, all right, that cycle's going to be broken. I'm going to obey you perfectly, and then we're going to give faith to people who sin less because I was sinless. And those are the people that will be your people. 
Jew or Gentile. Verse 24 is powerful. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Man, is the church, is Jesus' name mocked right now because of the actions of the church? Man, are there a lot of Christians just acting a fool. Everything from the dumb signs that they hold up about you're going to hell if, man, Jesus never did that. If anybody could have said that, it was Jesus. He never did that. He didn't go around unbelievers and antagonize them with their God hates gays. You're going to have God, abortion is murder. God's going to, Jesus didn't do that. He told the adulterous woman in John 8, he said, woman, where are your accusers? She said, they're gone, my Lord. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, we're supposed to say go and sin no more, but not self-righteously. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of many people who profess to believe in Jesus. So getting at circumcision, he says, circumcision benefits you if you observe the law, but if you're a lawbreaker, it, you're un, it might as well be uncircumcised. For if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? That's kind of wild, because it's like, man, I know some people who are not Christians that act better than Christians. You ever met someone and be like, man, you'd make a good Christian? <laughs> Somebody be like, dang, I'm, I'm ashamed about how you act. You had better self-control than I did. I'm up here complaining about my boss, gossiping to you. Like, you know what? I'm just not going to keep to my side. I ain't going to yeah. say nothing. You like, dang. You ever to go back and ask a non-Christian for forgiveness for something you did? Like, hey, uh, you got a second? I just want to ask you for forgiveness. For not. They be like, nah, I don't worry about you human. It's like, I know, but you acted more human than I did. You did better than me. A man who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law? will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. For a person is not a Jew outwardly, and true circumcision has, is, some, is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person who is a Jew inwardly, who really believes God and is circumcised of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter, that person's praise is not from people but from God. In other words, he's saying, look, you can, you can obey the Ten Commandments and all of that. You know what makes, you know what makes us different? They are, I know Muslims, right? Muslims play five times a day. They don't eat certain things. They're very strict people. On Ramadan, they fast for 40 days. They, they do a lot of real strict stuff, moral stuff. All this stuff that's like on the outside is like, wow, puts you to shame. Like I said last week, I saw Jehovah's Witnesses out there with these signs and promoting what they believe in. I'm like, they out here for hours. And it was a little cold last week. And they doing it. It's like they outwardly are doing it. But inwardly, it's the wrong thing. So God can't honor that. God's looking for an inward love for him. Not those who can express truth. I mean, he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He's not worried about our ability to articulate what is true. He's trying to see who actually believes this. Because those are Jews inwardly. That's what he's looking for. I'm not looking for people who grew up in the church and know this stuff. Or who go to seminary and now they know the theological concepts. So what? The world doesn't need more theologians. They need more genuine believers who love Jesus and who love others. Chapter 3. So if you're a Jew and you're hearing all this stuff, he asked a hypothetical question, which I would ask if I was a Jew, too. I'd ask this question myself, because he's been saying a lot of stuff about being Jewish. I, my first question would be like, man, isn't he Jewish, though? 
You know how when you hear people talk about, like, well, I ain't going to, never mind. That's a different conversation. So he says this in, in chapter 3. He says this. So what advantage does the Jew have? I think he's anticipating people asking this question. Well, if I'm Jewish and you're telling me that I'm really not Jewish, then what does that mean? He said, what advantage does the Jew have or what benefit is circumcision? What's the point of doing it then if it doesn't really matter? And he says, considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. Do you know that's the only explanation he gives? He says they were considerable in every way. First, they were trusted with the very words of God. That's it. That's the only explanation he gives right there. That's it. He says many ways, but here's the most important thing. You were trusted with the words of God. That by itself is better than everyone else. You were trusted by the God who created everything. He gave you the words of eternal life, chose your ethnicity, you. Why is this important for us? Because out of all the billions of people in the world, God has given those of us who are genuine Christians faith to believe in the very word of God. And we have been trusted entrusted with this word. That is significant. You think about all the billions of people in the world. I don't know. if you. It makes sense to me when you travel. When I was in India, I was there for a month total. I was like, wow. All these people, billions of people, cities packed. No personal space over there. All that, man, let me have, all that chairs separating each other, man, no way. Over there, it's like you look over here, you turn back, whoa, hey, man, back, can you back up a little bit? Right there in your face. All these people. And why am I a Christian? Why do I know the Lord and all these people are living in abject poverty, don't know Jesus? Why do you know the Lord? Why are you special? What's so cool about you that you know Jesus? Why, why do you get to have a Bible and read it? And you got people who are supposed to know Jesus that don't even care. Bibles is dusty. The, the app on your, on your phone has the least usage. Has the least usage. Click on, click on if you got an iPhone, click on settings. Click on battery, and it'll show you how much percentage you give. And that Bible app won't even say 1% for some folks. And we've been entrusted with the very words of God. And the rest of the logic he says here, he says, what then? If some were unfaithful, he goes into this, he understands that some people are going to say, okay, well, what about the people who got the words of God and they're unfaithful? If they don't obey God, is something wrong with God then? Or is it fair for God to judge them then? These are God's people. Why, why, why shouldn't they, if God's grace is so amazing, then why shouldn't people just sin like it's nothing? And here's how he speaks to that. He says, verse 3, what then? If someone unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not, verse 4. Let God be true even though everyone is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. In other words, he's saying people are appealing for, well, look, why can't I just sin if God's more glorified than that? And he's saying that's a dumb argument. That's not the purpose of grace. 
Grace doesn't lower the standard. It just forgives you for not keeping it. So he says, is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? If, if God's grace is more magnified when people sin and he forgives them, then why is he, people are going to hell then? What's the point? And he says, absolutely not, verse 6. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim, we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. It's a terrible argument to say, look, if God's grace is so amazing, then I should be able to sin. Why are we being judged then? Why are we being judged if I'm glorifying God? I'm demonstrating how great his grace is to forgive sin. Then why shouldn't we pursue sin? He's saying you're missing the point. That's a human argument. And by human, what he means is it's not spiritual. It's unspiritual. It's not an argument that comes from eternity because when it comes from eternity and you understand, wow, I've been given the very word of God and be given the entrusted with the words of God. That's a serious thing. That's like a man who's married saying, I mean, all right, I'm married, but shoot, as long as I'm, if I'm still attracted to other people, why can't I have sex with them? That would be foolish to say. And the woman would be right in your face like the dude was like, whoa, back up. It'd be dumb to say. It's the same thing he's saying here. That's foolish. Do you understand what that means to be entrusted with the words of God? He's saying God is going to judge people because they reject Jesus Christ. And he's not just talking about one subset of people. He's talking about everyone. And so he covers that beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have all already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin as it is written. Quoting multiple passages in the Old Testament. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers' venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. He's talking about us. He's talking about, talking about how we would live, how we choose to live outside of Jesus Christ. Saying no one is good. Verse 19. Now, we know, what, whatever, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. He's saying this, look, you can't be, you can't be declared not guilty just because you know what sin is. You can only be declared not guilty if you don't sin, ever. Once you sin, you forfeited that right. And I guarantee for all of us who have had children and babies, and babies sin. <laughs> Don't feed a baby when they're hungry. That cry boy will do something to you. It'll psychologically mess you up. Especially at 3 a.m., about 3.18. Those of you who are single, your time is coming. At 3.18 a.m.? Children are a gift from the Lord, huh? Right, right, right. What? If they a gift, then hush this baby up so I can get the gift of sleep. <laughs> Saying no one is good. This is why God has to bring judgment, because no one is good. No one is good. From 118 to 320, all bad news. All bad news. He's only giving you glimpses of the good news. That's it, glimpses. He's making a point 
No one is right before God unless it's by the gospel. But he hasn't really said what the gospel is yet. He's just telling you no one is good before God unless it's by the gospel. I don't care how good they are. Even if it's not the, the Ten Commandments, everyone's trying to obey some law. There's no such thing as an atheist. Every atheist believes they're, they're their own God. There's no such thing. You may not believe in the for, formal religious gods, but you believe you're, you're a God. You believe your ability to reason and think is God-like. Everyone's obeying some moral code. The question is, is it the right one? Is it the right one? All bad news until 321. Now it gets good. This is where the movie's like, all right, man, this has been a gloomy movie. Man, you done ate all the popcorn. and like, man, this movie's got me feeling sad. It's like one of them Batman movies, all dark and just like, man, what's going on? And then here comes the good news. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood previously committed. So Jesus dying on the cross made right what was wrong. It's almost like it's a, it's like a, a, a financial situation. He purchased back. He purchased our, our salvation on his behalf, on our behalf. So it says in verse 26. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous to one who has faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, God has to punish sin. That's not going to happen. He cannot do that. Every sin that everyone in this room, all of us have committed, is going to be punished by God. The ultimate question is, who receives the punishment? There is no sin that will not go unpunished. Every sin will. The question is, who receives the punishment? There's only two people that can receive the punishment. Only two, from God's perspective. The person who did it or Jesus. That's it. Either Jesus took your punishment for you or you're going to take it when you see God. And if Jesus is on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was on the cross for six hours. If he's screaming out like that, then the wrath of God must be something serious. Jesus was on the cross for six hours and experienced the full wrath of God. In the Old Testament, in, in, in Genesis, when God flooded the earth, millions of people were killed. Millions of animals were killed. Carnage, blood, all that stuff everywhere. And that wasn't the full wrath of God because Noah, his three sons, and their four wives were all spared. So whatever God did in the Old Testament, in the flood, all them people killed, was nothing compared to what Jesus experienced on the cross for six hours. You cannot handle the wrath of God. You can't handle a car accident. You can't handle a, a Charlie horse. You can't handle Chick-fil-A's closed on Sunday. See, I'm, I'm already touching the nerve right now. Touching the nerve right now. People are going to get to me. You can't handle missing the Black Friday sale. You can't handle the wrath of God. And God is saying you don't have to. You don't have to. That's the good news. 
Turn to chapter 4. To further prove the point, Paul now, God, Paul is representing God, wants to highlight how Abraham, the man who is seen as the father of faith, became right with God. And he wants to prove it wasn't by anything Abraham did. It wasn't by his works. So he's keeping this true. He's proving this point using Abraham and then David. He says this in verse 1, For what will we say then about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh is found? What did Abraham find out? If Abraham was justified by his works, and by justified, that just means made right before God. If you want to think of what justified means, it means you get to go to heaven. That's what justified means. That's just like you get to go to heaven. God will declare you not guilty. Well, how did Abraham figure that out? Was it something that he did? Because if he did, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. So he says, look, Abraham just believed what God said. And what God told Abraham was he was going to make him the father of many nations. That he would give him a son and heir at an old age. He was 90. No ability to have children. And his wife was in no shape. She was 80. In no shape to have children. And God said, you will have children, you two, naturally. And he believed him. He believed God, and that was credited to him as righteousness. Remember when Jesus told Thomas, blessed are those who do not see and believe? Abraham couldn't see what God was promising from a physical standpoint, but he believed him, so he said, you got it. We did not see Jesus walk on this earth. We didn't see him go up. We didn't see any of that. But we have faith, even though we don't see it, and so God says, your faith is like Abraham. That's the same thing. Your faith is like Abraham. Skip down to verse 6. He's trying to say, using now he's using David, which the Jews would have been like the greatest king of their history. And he said, just as David speaks of the blessing of the person whom God credits righteousness apart from works, and then David quotes Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, and he says this, Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one the Lord will never charge with sin. This is good news. Because we violate our consciences often. We break God's law often. And if those are the only ways we could be right before God, we would have no hope. What David is saying here is that, look, whose lawless acts are forgiven. He doesn't say they're not lawless. They're not sinful. God doesn't, when scripture says God will remember your sins no more, he's not really saying you didn't sin. That's not, God isn't thinking that. He's not going to look at you and be like, well, I don't remember nothing you did, man. Come on in. <laughs> no, that's not what he means. What he means is when I see you, you are covered by the blood of my son. Therefore, whatever you did has been forgiven. There will be no judgment. The punishment you deserve has been forgotten. That's gone. There's a difference. He said, whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. We have lawless acts and we sin and they're covered because of Jesus Christ. And he says, blessed is the person the Lord will never, the Lord will never charge with sin. I just, I, I, that's going to be a wild moment to stand before the Lord finally. And we're going to be trembling and all that. John the, John the Baptist, I mean, the Apostle John 
John, the apostle John is the only one who called himself the apostle that Jesus loved. I wonder how that, how that worked out in heaven. But now you know why the apostles would be offended at each other. Like, man, what you mean you're the one, only one Jesus loved? Man, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that happened. Those brothers had dark melon. I'm sure they got into it a little bit. And, and, it's, and then when he sees Jesus in this vision in Revelation, he doesn't even recognize him. He's so terrorized by it. This is He's the one that said, I'm the one who Jesus loves. He should have been like, wow, Lord, you look different. Is that you? Good to see you, bro. He turned around and saw Jesus, eyes flaming, hair, bright white, sword coming out of his mouth. I mean, that sounds like Japanese anime. I would have been. John is dropped. Don't think for a moment we're not going to stand there and probably tremble. So the spirit had to pick John up so that he could stand. If the one who Jesus loved had to have that happen, the spirit's going to be picking all of us up. You'd probably be fighting against the spirit. No, I can't look. No, you got to look. No, I can't look. Look up. Look up at the Lord. No, look right here. It's going to be terrifying. You know why? Because we know we're wrong. And we know we've sinned. And if we're honest, that's why a lot of Christians are worried about dying for real. Because we know, like, man, we kind of, like, haven't lived the way we're supposed to. And I'm, I'm kind of ashamed or afraid to stand before God. Is he really that merciful? I know Christians who are more afraid of dying than living for Christ. You focusing on how you should die. You can't change that. You're not even living. He's going he's gonna to hold us up. And we're going to see him. And we're going to find out that it was true. That he's not charging us as our sins deserve. That's why we're going to be celebrating in heaven. That's why. Because I don't think we're going to forget what we did. Revelation 21, 7. He says they will wipe every tear from their eye. You know why? Because there's still going to be tears in heaven. There's going to be some regret until he does that. Until he says, nah, no more. It's done. It's done. I think we're going to feel that. We're going to feel it. That's the good news. That's the good news. And then in verses 9 through, uh, 13, 9 through 12, he's just going back to proving that circumcision, which was what was given to Abraham in Genesis 17, as sort of the contractual agreement. All right, Abraham, because you are my people, because I've, you've expressed faith in me, I'm going to make this agreement with you that the people that come from you, your ancestors, they're going to be my people. And what I want you to do now is to be circumcised. All, only the males, circumcise all the males. And that's going to represent sort of your, your, your part of the contract from what we're talking about. And so he does that. So he's now going after this saying, look, circumcision did not make Abraham right before God. Circumcision is not something that Abraham did to be saved. He did after he was saved. So we got to obey God, right? And the same thing, in, in, in many of you, whether you're a Christian or not, are aware of probably the exodus where God takes, if you've seen the Prince of Egypt, Moses and Pharaoh were not brothers, spoiler alert. But so, but so Jesus, so God, God takes all these people out, right? He saves them first, then he tells them this is how you live. That's the pattern. You can't live first and then be saved. Because it's not good enough. You've already failed. 
You've sinned 118,000 times already. You can't, it's, it's too late. So God doesn't say, live first and then you'll be saved. He says, no, let me save you first. Now here's how you live. And so he's proving that point that, look, Abraham was given, was credited as righteous, not because he was circumcised before that. So how can you say, well, I got to do this to be saved? No, 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 that's not it. And then in the last uh, couple of verses from 13 to 24, I'll summarize, I'll read part of it. For the, verse 13, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. That's what he's saying. You are made right before God. God will see you as not guilty. You're going to heaven because of faith. Same thing with Abraham. He didn't do anything. He was incapable of, of bringing about the promise that God said. All he could do is believe it, even though he couldn't see it. And you and I believe him, even though we don't see him. For those, if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise nullified. In other words, if those who get to heaven because they obey the law, if they're the people that are right before God, then there's no promise. And then all of, everything that God said falls apart. Verse 16, this is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, the Jews who got the law, but also to those who are of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in God's sight in whom Abraham believed the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. Skip down to verse 22. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It wasn't just given to Abraham. Those of us in this room who genuinely believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, even though we didn't see it, we didn't even see him, God says they have faith. And he's pleased with the expression of faith, even when it looks like this while I'm preaching. <laughs> I may not be pleased, but I'm not the Lord. He is. So when we get to chapter 5, Adam's going to take us, uh, he's going to take us back to, Paul's going to take us back to sort of why is all of this taking shape, highlighting Adam, who's the first human being, and, and I'm not going to give it away, spoiler alert, there is none, wait till next week. But we're going to get to that portion where we're going to now talk about the significance of humanity, like why do we need faith? Why do we need faith, and why is it by faith alone and not by works of the law. So that's the good news. The good news is it's Jesus Christ and our faith in him. And it's, sometimes it's hard to get to figure this out. It's difficult because we still, we still obey God, but we don't obey God to earn our salvation. We, we obey God because we've been given salvation. There's a difference. And we persevere to the end. For those of us who are through the storm, in the storm, stay focused. In John chapter 6, when Jesus taught that people must drink his blood and eat of his flesh, all the, it said that his disciples, there were many disciples that Jesus had, when they started hearing him talk like that, they thought he meant literally in the sense, and they were like, this teaching is too hard, and they walked away. 
It said the disciples, many disciples walked away, not just people, but disciples were people who had agreed to sit under Jesus and believe in Jesus. So they walked away. And they said, Jesus comes to the 12, the ones he chose. And they said, what about you? Are you going to leave too? And they said the very thing that is true for every one of us that believe in Jesus Christ. They said, where are we going to go? You have the keys to eternal life. Even if I don't like what you do, you still got the keys. So where am I going to go? It's Jesus or bust. And that's what it is for us. We're going to now transition to doing the very